The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Now let's look at Exodus 16 together. As we continue our study in Exodus, we come to this great chapter concerning uh, manna. And uh, I'm going to read it and just make some comments about the historical uh, events. Um, But we're not going to stay historical very long because, as you can already tell from the singing, we're going to make a very strong spiritual connection from the physical manna that was fed to the Israelites in the wilderness to the spiritual manna that we receive from the Word of God. And that's a connection that we want to make. We want to make it strongly, and I don't have any problem making that connection because the Scripture itself makes it, uh, makes that connection. Beginning at uh, verse 1 of Exodus 16, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is be, uh, between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, In the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much and some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. 
They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather, but on the seventh the day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And omer is one-tenth of an ephah. That is the story of the manna. Now, the first aspect I want to discuss is just the physical side of what's going on. God is bringing a huge horde of people out of Egypt into the Promised Land. Estimates show that could be as many as 2 million or more people, probably more, 600,000 men plus women and children. And so we run into an immense logistical difficulty. As we saw in the last time that we studied in Exodus 15, they needed water to drink and God gave them water. So now they run into the difficulty of food to eat. And this is an ongoing problem, a consistent problem, and it was designed right from the beginning, from creation, to be this way. For, as Jonathan Edwards said in one sermon, God is glorified in man's dependence. I'll say that again. God is glorified in man's dependence on him. We were created to be dependent. And so we have this region of our bodies that gets cyclically empty. And it needs to be filled. And it is filled by the provision of the Lord. If he provides, then we have something to eat and we survive. If he does not provide, we do not survive. And so we are dependent on him. And it's so important for us 21st century Americans to realize that. We're very far removed from the Lord's provision of the food. We tend to think it comes from Kroger's or Food Lion or wherever it is you, you shop. It does not come from those places, but it comes directly from the, from the Lord as he sends rain from heaven and as he causes seed to sprout up and grow. And if he, if he does not do those things, we do not eat, we do not survive. Uh, we haven't known much hunger in America because this is a good land that he's given us and he has provided. Not because we are more righteous or more clever agriculturally or have the right techniques, but because God has blessed us. 
uh, we have had enough. But these people, two million or more, were dependent on God. And imagine the faith of Moses to lead such a huge army of people into a land he knew very well. He knew the desert. He had roamed there for 40 years himself, and he knew that there wasn't enough to sustain a man crossing the desert, never mind two million plus. And so he went out at the command of the Lord by faith and led them straight away from provision, away from Egypt, away from the succulence of the land, away from anything, and totally dependent on the Lord to provide. And Moses stepped out in faith. Now, whenever God does something great and glorious, a display of his majesty, first we must have a, a black backdrop of human sin so that we can see the diamond sparkle all the more. And so right at the beginning, you're going to see the, the grumbling and complaining of Israel as once again they're faithless. And again and again the people are faithless. They're disobedient. They can't even follow simple instructions. And it's a remarkable thing as the Lord even comments on that. How long will this people refuse to obey my commands? Six days you shall labor. The seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord. Don't store any of it till morning. You'll have enough tomorrow. And so they, they couldn't follow his instructions. But before any of that comes the grumbling and the complaining. We get in verse 2 and 3. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. What a strange memory of their years in Egypt. Do you remember what it was like back in those days? I mean, we just lounged around comfortable satisfied, just kind of reached out and took a fork and dipped it into the boiling pot and out came whatever we wanted. Oh, for those days again, when we could have just had all the food we wanted. How, what an odd thing. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. How could you ever look back on those days of bondage in sin and slavery and say, if only I could go back and do those things that I used to do? Those things result in death. They were, they were slaves in Egypt. They were suffering greatly, but how much they forget. You know, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But now you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Once again, who are they forgetting? Oh, once again, they're forgetting God. And Moses makes this very clear. Who are we that you should grumble against us? I've thought about this chapter and that particular statement many times when it comes to evangelism. When you go to a, a total stranger, somebody sitting on the airplane, or you try to witness door to door, or even if you witness to somebody who you know, and they begin to get angry and agitated at you, do you realize how little you have to do with all that? It literally has nothing to do with you. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a way to be rude and uh, uh, approach in a, in a way that's harmful and detrimental, and I think we should not do those things. But what I'm saying is, as you are sensitive and you're in a conversation, you're sharing the gospel and they get angry at you, you can think of Exodus 16. Who am I that you should be upset at me? I'm nobody. I'm nothing. Servant of the Lord. And so it was with Moses and Aaron, they grumbled. But against this black backdrop of sin comes the beautiful diamond of God's grace. And he says in verse 4, I will rain down, and A.W. Pink puts it beautifully, not fire and brimstone, but bread from heaven. You know, it says in Psalm 11, on the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. 
But on his people, instead, he rains down manna. He rains down bread. They do not get what they deserve. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. Amen? And is that not good? He lavishes grace and mercy, and he feeds them. Now, I was encouraged as I followed A.W. Pink's commentary here that he did the kind of calculation that my engineering mind delights in concerning how much manna God provided for them. Are you willing to follow A.W. Pink now and not me? This isn't me now. This isn't me being an engineer again. This is just what he calculated. And the purpose of this is that you might see the wonder of God, that you might see the power of God, as you did in the crossing of the Red Sea, when he physically moved and carved a path in the Red Sea and pushed that water back with all that immense force that God displayed. Now he's providing for them. Now they were each one to gather an omer, which is six pints. And, and at two million people, that's 12 million pints could be as much as 9 to 12 million pounds of food every day. That's 4,500 tons. It makes sense. Think of a city of 2 million people. What would it take to feed them? 4,500 tons of food every single day. And 9,000 in preparation for the Sabbath. An immense amount of provision from God. A.W. Pink said, think of 10 trains with 30 cars on each train. 15 tons each. That's how much it would take to feed this people. And not just for a day, but for 40 years, this is what he did. A miracle every single day. A miracle of God's provision. And so God met the needs of his people. Now, why did he do it this way? Why the manna? Why all of the details, the commands? Why did he do it this way? Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and God explains very, very plainly why he provided the manna in the way he did. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8, verse 1 through 5. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today. Now, this is at the end of their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They're about to enter the promised land, and uh, he's trying to sum up the lessons that they've learned, spiritual lessons, and manna was one of those lessons. This is what he says. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Verse 3, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. If you could sum those five verses up, why the manna? It was in order to discipline Israel and train them concerning a central lesson that he wanted them to learn. And that was that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He did it to humble them that they would be humbled, that they would realize as they look around in the desert and, and say, what did we do to feed ourselves? What did I, let's say, as the head of the house do to provide for my family today? Well, I grabbed a basket and I went out and collected it. 
God is the hero and I am humbled thereby. Very important lesson because later in Deuteronomy 8, he's going to say when you go into the promised land and you start to, to sow and to reap and when you start to even harvest things that you didn't sow and reap, you're going to forget me and you're going to think it's by my own strength and skill that I have gained all of this for myself. No, it's the same thing, just it seems a few steps removed, but it's still God who's provided. And so he did the, the lesson of the manna was that they would be humbled and that they would be trained and taught to obey the word of God. Central lesson, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 4. And this is our bridge over to the spiritual side of the word of God. Matthew chapter 4. This is Jesus' temptation in the desert. Jesus also led into the desert just as Israel had been led into the desert. Jesus led by the Spirit into the desert to be tested by the devil. Matthew 4.1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, quoting Deuteronomy 8, is speaking of the manna. And what's fascinating here to me is that just the transformation that this verse has taken in my own understanding. The first understanding I had of this as a Christian was that this is the quintessential quiet time verse. You know what I'm saying? You need to have a quiet time. Why? Because man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And is this true? Yes, it is. And that is going to be one of our applications. No question about it. But I think we have to go a little bit deeper. How did the lesson of manna in the Old Testament teach the lesson that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God? Realize that back then, they didn't have written scripture. Now, it was being produced during those 40 years. I think Moses was writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Those things were being written. But it didn't really happen. And, and so even if he was writing it, I don't think that they were reading what he wrote. It was something he was writing, and then eventually there would be copies. But instead, it had to do with a basic disposition of the people before God. Here I am. I am your servant. You tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Speak, and I will obey. Know in your heart, then, that the Lord led you in the desert. We move when the pillar moves, and we eat when God provides. And we eat what God provides in the manner he provides it. He gave his own son a sterner test. He went out into the desert for 40 days and had literally nothing to eat. Jesus, referring back to the written word, which is now available to the Jews, after the devil tempted him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread, he said, it is written, and then he quotes Deuteronomy, man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What does this mean? It means I will not eat until God gives the word. I eat at the word of God. I sleep at the word of God. I move at the word of God. I act at the word of God. I go here at the word of God. Now, in Moses' day, they didn't have the written word, so he was leading them through the pillar and through the manna and through Moses and Aaron. That's how he led them, and they followed, but it was a lesson they had to learn. And we're in the same place. We are a people before God needing to say, lead me and I will follow. Speak to me and I will obey. But now God has given us this, the written word. 
And the way he speaks to his people now is by means of the written word. That's why Jesus said, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So your disposition should be, as you come to the scripture, speak and I will obey. Talk to me, Lord. Lead me by means of these, these words on the page. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. This is Hebrews 3. The Holy Spirit speaks by means of Psalm 95. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It's alive. Speak to me, Lord. Talk to me. It's my food. And so we have a bridge now from the physical manna and the experience of the Israelites into the word of God. Now, A.W. Pink does for us, and we don't have enough time to go through them all, so we'll do this again next week, some points of contact between the physical manna and the word of God. And he says word of God, and then it breaks into two different kinds of categories. The manna is a type or a picture of the scripture, the written word of God, and the manna is a type or picture of Christ, the incarnate word of God. And we're going to look at those in, in two different uh, sections. The first we're going to take the manna as a type or picture of the written word of God. And here I'm following A.W. Pink's really excellent work as he finds 15 points of contact between the uh, manna and the written word of God. We have nine minutes left. So I am not going to do them in 40 seconds each. We're just going to do a few of them. And then we'll try, God willing, to do some more next week. But we're going to see some points of contact between the physical manna. And I'm going to add a few to myself that I've noticed. First, we notice that the manna was a supernatural gift. There's no human explanation for the manna. I mean, you can't explain it. You go out and there's this layer of dew or frost, and then it's gone, and there's this bread. How do you explain that? It is a supernatural thing. And so also the scripture has no human explanation. I believe that, you know, people say, I want a miracle. You hold in your hand a miracle when you hold the scripture. There is no way to explain this book humanly. Think alone of the predictive prophecies in here. The prophecies of Alexander the Great hundreds of years before he was born. How do you explain that? How can it be explained? The accuracy of the life of Christ. The way that it reads your life so perfectly. You know what I'm talking about? It is a perfect mirror. You hold it up and that's me. Absolutely. The way that it arranges everything so beautifully. You cannot explain this humanly. There's no way a human being could have figured this out. No way. And so, as the manna, physical, physical manna, was a supernatural gift, so also the word of God is supernatural. You encounter a miracle every time you open the scripture. Every time. It's the Word of God. And I think the more you understand, uh, to me, Hebrews 3 is just so strong. Hebrews 3, 7, and 8. So as the Holy Spirit says, quote, Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. To me, that's just exploded off the page. It means every time I'm reading Scripture, the Holy Spirit's talking to me. So as the Holy Spirit says, present tense. That's why in chapter 4, the Word of God is living. It's speaking today. So I, I sit down with the Scripture and I say, talk to me, Lord, talk to me. And as he speaks up off the page, I speak it back to him in prayer. That's Psalm 119, by the way. Word speaks, and the psalmist speaks to the Lord. It's just beautiful to see that. But the, the manna is supernatural gift, so also the scripture. Secondly, the manna came right to where the people were. Wasn't that convenient? Can you imagine if it was just miles off? 
And so also the word of God is here. God has provided it for us. Now, we could argue that there are many of God's people that do not have access to scripture. And that is a great tragedy. It's one of the perversions of our time because of tyrannical anti-Christian governments that will not allow the scriptures to come to them. But what I'm saying to you is, for the most part, we have ample access to the Word of God. The great shame for us is how accessible it is and how little we read it. I would say that it's, it would be unusual, I would hope, that the Bible is gathering dust on your shelf, but that doesn't mean you read it enough. It doesn't mean that you saturate your mind in it enough. And so the, the manna was accessible. They just got their baskets and there it was. There it was. And so also with the scripture. You just go out and there it is. There's the Bible again. It's kind of there all the time. And you can pick it up and read it anytime you want. There it is. The manna came right to where the people were. The accessibility. Thirdly, the point that Pink makes is that the manna was small in size. Look at verse 14 of Exodus 16. He says, uh, when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost appeared on the ground on the desert floor. These little thin flakes, the word thin would, is another translation is a small, it's a tiny little thing. So it's just little, little pieces. And so also I think there's a spiritual connection here. First of all, the Bible itself is a relatively small thing. When you stop and think about it, this is the word of God. And it gets even smaller than that, although my eyesight, I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep doing the whole pocket Bible thing. You know, maybe the, whole, the New Testament alone, I don't know. But it is a small thing. You see what I'm saying? Those of you sitting in the back row, do you see how small this little black book is? It's a small thing. So also the manna is small. And so you had to kind of collect also, I want to say when you open it up, truth comes from the scripture in small packets to you, doesn't it? You don't get a whole big picture all at once. You just can't take it in. So what you're doing is you're taking in small pieces of truth and building a system of truth just over the years. Just like you eat the manna, it just comes piece by piece to you, little at a time, and a whole orchestration, a beautiful symphony of truth builds up over the years. So it is with the manna being small and the word of God physically small. Pink makes the point that the manna was white in color. And I think he's valid in making this. Sometimes he takes things too far, but he does tell us it was white. Why is that important? I would have thought a, a, a better color, a darker color, would be easier to see against the desert floor. And so I think he chose white because white represents consistently in Scripture purity. Purity. And so it says in Psalm 12, verse 6, the words, plural, of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times over. Perfect, absolutely perfect. The Word of God is pure and it is perfect. Like in Psalm 19, the, the Word of the Lord is pure. It is unmixed. Yes, it is a word of man. Yes, human beings wrote this, but it is the word of God, and therefore it is pure. It is unmixed with error. There's a purity to it. Fifthly, the manna was to be eaten. Well, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That's why it was given, because they were hungry. They needed to eat it. What is the connection to the scripture? Well, you need to eat the word of God. Now, if you think I'm talking literally, you know I'm not, okay? I'm probably some group in Texas is making a physically edible scripture. I hope not. I really do. But, I mean, it's incredible to me, the marketing in the Christian world these days. Amazing to me. The Cosmo Bible. We were talking about that. Andy and I looking at it. Amazing what they will do. Um, but the point we're making here is spiritual. You must take in. You must appropriate. Take up and bring to yourself the word of God. You must take it in. They had, to, they had to take it up and bring it into their tents. They had to bring it to their homes. 
and then they had to eat it. They had to chew it. They had to swallow it. It had to go through their bloodstream and bring them nourishment. So also it must be with you. The Word of God is best appropriated through intense thinking and meditation. You got to chew on the Word. Eric was talking about his time at the uh, John Piper uh, conference on, on Jonathan Edwards, and he said one of the things that struck him the most was a practical hint. If you have 10 minutes to deal with Scripture, I would parenthetically say that's not enough. Okay, But if you only have 10 minutes, okay, spend five of it reading and five of it meditating. Take the five minutes you've read and drive it into your heart. Think about it. Work it over. Nathaniel and I were doing that on Saturday morning at the men's retreat. We had a wonderful morning devotional together. And Psalm 119, verse 27, just a couple of verses after we stopped. But uh, it's, it's very striking. Take a minute and look there, if you would. Just Psalm 119, uh, verse 27. And uh, this, no, I noted this a while ago and thought it was strange. Um, but just by working it over it, it made sense to me. Look at Psalm 119, verse 27. Are you all there? Okay. Psalm 119, verse 27. It says, Let me understand the teaching of your precepts, then I will meditate on your wonders. Now that is striking to me. Because it's exactly the opposite of what I thought it should have said. Not that I'm trying to rewrite scripture, but think about it. Wouldn't it have made more sense in one sense, let me meditate on the teaching of your precepts, then I will understand your wonders. But the psalmist goes the other way around. And says, give me some understanding, give me some reward, something, some new insight. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things. Give me some new thing that I'd never noticed before. And you know what I'll do as a result? I'll work harder on scripture. I'll, I'll meditate on it even more. Give me something, God. Give me something that I'd never noticed before. The, when I preach through Psalm 119, you may, may remember the analogy of your the, the rich eccentric uncle in Tucson who gives you the abandoned silver mine. Do you remember that? And, and, you, and you buy a plane ticket out there and you, and you find out from the town people where it is, although they're looking at you odd and they say, well, what do you want with that old place? Well, my uncle died and gave it to me. Oh, that guy? He's your uncle? Oh, boy. Anyway, so there it is. It's up there. Good luck. Silver mine, huh? Yeah. So you go up and you push the cobwebs aside and you go down with a flashlight and if you probe and poke around in there for three or four hours and come up with zero silver, how many more trips into that silver mine are you going to make? Most likely, none. But if on the other hand you find a vein of silver, will you be motivated to go back down in that hole? Oh yes, again and again and with pickaxes and shovels and with helpers and Yes, you're going to go in there and you're going to try to find everything there is in there. You're not going to find just a little vein in the scripture. You're going to find, you're going to find just huge quantities of riches in the word. But in Psalm 119.27, he says, give me something. Give me a nugget, okay? And as a result, I'll be encouraged and I'll meditate all the more. Now, first of all, I'm just talking about meditation. But then I'm saying, how many of you have read Psalm 119.27 just went right over it? Okay. Roy Sams at least, all right? Maybe a few others. I know I had. I'd read it many times, Roy. I'd read it many, many times and just, whoosh, no, it just didn't hit me. All right, meditation, good. It never occurred to me, the odd juxtaposition there and to think about it, that is meditation. You have 10 minutes, half of it reading, half of it on meditation. The manna had to be chewed in order to provide benefit for the people. That's five. We've got 11 or 12 more to go. 
So we'll talk more about it next time, God willing. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.